You're going to love this. Just love it. Oh, I hope so. I really, really hope so. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Why did I? Why I got did the I? feeling there's something right. It isn't. It isn't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. I'm not. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. Stuck in the middle with you, right here on the Bradcast. On Pacifica Radio's KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest, China Lake, 91.7 FM on KYAQ up on the Oregon Central Coast, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app. On the Progressive Voices channel, on Netroots Radio, now on Indie Media Weekly, and also on iTunes. Yes, you can run, but you can't hide. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, all, uh, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, if no one else, from bradblog.com. Glad you could join us. We are live here this afternoon. You can tweet me throughout the show if you like. At the Brad blog, uh, lots to cover. Going to be uh, heading down to North Carolina momentarily, where the nation's Ari Berman will be joining us live. Uh, just getting out of the uh, federal courtroom down there, where the uh, nation's most atrocious voter suppression law is now being challenged. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, but coming up a little bit later in the show, some insight into the reporter, I have to put that in quotes. You can't see me, but I'm putting that in quotes. Some insight into the reporter who broke the fake story about uh, Democratic New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez and hookers in the Dominican Republic just before the 2012 election. It turns out, of course, that that story is phony, as we all knew, and as the supposed hookers admitted when they came forward and the story was retracted and they said that someone paid them to go on video and lie about having sex with Menendez. Now Washington Post is reporting that the whole story was planted by Cuban agents. Okay, but the guy who it was planted with, who covered, who, who wrote the story originally, after a whole bunch of real news outlets turned it down because it was incredible, that pretend reporter, Matthew Boyle, then of Tucker Carlson's The Daily Caller, now of Andrew Breitbart's Breitbart.com, that guy, Matthew Boyle, has always been a sucker or a stooge, if you prefer, when it comes to his reporting. And I will have details on my run-in with this particular clown some years ago a bit later in the show. Plus, Desi Doyen, of course, will be joining us for the latest Green News report, as usual, including some accountability news, sort of, on Freedom Industries. That's the company Freedom. And that's the company responsible for the that had the freedom uh, to spill all sorts of toxic chemicals 
into the drinking water of 600,000 people in West Virginia earlier earlier this year. Some accountability for them. And now uh, how Oklahoma has overtaken us here in, Ca- in California as the earthquake capital of the nation. And if we have time to talk to her about it, I've got some amazing audio from an actual Kentucky state senator with his incredible global warming denialism in a legislative hearing and hint that audio and that global warming denialism includes Mars. So you want to stay tuned for all of that and more straight ahead. But first, we have discussed the landmark ruling a few months ago in a federal court in Wisconsin that struck down that state's polling place photo ID restrictions. That case, that federal uh, ruling was, uh, as I see it in any case, a devastating setback for Republicans and their attempts to use polling place photo ID to keep minorities, students, the poor and the elderly, all demographics that tend to vote for Democrats and who disproportionately lack the type of state issued IDs required under those laws from being able to vote at all. In the Wisconsin case, U.S. District Court Judge Lynn Edelman found it, quote, absolutely clear that the Badger State's attempted voting restrictions put forward by Republicans will, quote, prevent more legitimate votes from being cast than fraudulent ones. Now, that case could well have an impact on the federal challenge against an almost identical law passed by Republicans in the state of Texas. After the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act uh, requirement that election laws receive advance approval from the federal government in places like Texas with a history of discrimination at the polls. The law had been repeatedly rejected down in Texas, found to be discriminatory by the DOJ, by the federal courts, until the Supremes gutted the Voting Rights Act, after which Texas immediately reenacted that law. Now, the DOJ is using a different part of the Voting Rights Act to challenge the state of Texas and that law. And last week, they won a small court battle. Also good news, a small court battle they won in uh, in the GOP's war on voting down there as the judge denied the state's attempt to dismiss that suit. As UC Irvine law professor uh, Richard Hassan wrote, The judge, quote, even allowed claims to go forward at this point on voter ID as a poll tax and as a First Amendment violation. We don't know, of course, if those will be successful arguments in court, but they are now allowed to move forward. And uh, it will be very interesting because we are on ground that we have never been on before as far as the way the Voting Rights Act has to be now used in order to challenge these laws. The Brad Blog's legal analyst, Ernie Canning, has written at great length about his belief that we are now seeing the beginning of the end of these laws following the Wisconsin uh, uh, ruling. In the meantime, the law we described as the nation's most restrictive voter suppression law is now on trial, at least having hearings in a federal courtroom in North Carolina. The case against North Carolina's voter suppression law began this week as the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice, the ACLU, the League of Women Voters and other plaintiffs are seeking a preliminary injunction on the most sweeping and restrictive uh, election reform bill now in the nation. This was passed by Republicans after they took over uh, the legislature and the governor's office for the first time since Reconstruction. 
Uh, in addition to draconian polling place photo ID restrictions in this bill, despite any evidence of in-person voter impersonation in the state, the legislation also shortens early voting period, uh, eliminates North Carolina's very successful same-day voter registration program, eliminates pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds, bars counting provisional ballots cast in the right county but in the wrong precinct. Uh, prohibits, it even prohibits extending poll hours in extraordinary circumstances like long lines. Uh, virtually every anti-voting provision that Republicans have been pushing forward for the last uh, decade are included in this North Carolina bill. This bill was originally about 16 pages, and it sat, it languished in the uh, North Carolina uh, legislature until the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, and then... Uh, days later, the bill ballooned to 57 pages, uh, it had added all of these provisions uh, now uh, that you know reduced early voting. The expanded bill then passed the House and the Senate two days later, <laughs> two days later, with virtually no debate, no public comment whatsoever. And then Governor Pat McCrory, the Republican governor there who used to uh, be an energy executive, uh, he signed that bill. Ari Berman wrote at The Nation that uh, this legislation is likely to be deeply unpopular. That's what he wrote at the time this bill uh, was passed and signed into law. He said, for example, 56 percent, 56 percent of North Carol Carolinians voted early during the 2012 election. Blacks used early voting at higher rates than whites, compromising, comprising a majority of those who voted absentee or early. According to public policy polling, Ari reported 78 percent of North Carolinians support the current early voting system. Seventy five percent have used it in the past. In addition, he wrote over one hundred and fifty five thousand voters registered to vote and voted on the same day during the early voting period in 2012. Voters expressed their satisfaction and gratitude that North Carolina had a process that afforded citizens with more opportunities to register and vote, according to a 2009 report from the State Board of Election. And yet, North Carolina gutted it all by adding all of these new provisions after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. North Carolina has a long history of this. Uh, it, poll taxes and literacy tests were used against black voters up until 1970, according to the Winston-Salem Journal. Uh, the mo uh, uh, blacks were still forced to read parts of the U.S. Constitution in order to vote in some parts of the state up until 1970. And between 1971 and 2012, the Justice Department objected 64 times to changes in North Carolina's voting laws that were subject to federal approval under the Voting Rights Act, which has now been gutted to take away that need for pre-clearance. That law is now being challenged in uh, the federal courtroom in North Carolina right now, and uh, the plaintiffs are hoping to get a, a temporary injunction put in place, I should say a permanent, uh, a preliminary injunction in place before the trial begins in uh, in in proper next year, uh, July of 2015. But they want to take some of these provisions, uh, put them on hold right now prior to the 2014 election. That's the hearings that are going on this week in the courtroom in North Carolina that will affect everyone and how the Voting Rights Act is now um, 
is now enacted, is now used by the Department of Justice and uh, and private individuals across the country. Joining us now from that courtroom where the hearing has just let out, I think the third day of this hearing, political correspondent Ari Berman from The Nation. He focuses in uh, great and important detail these days on voting rights issues. He's author of Hurting Donkeys, The Fight to Rebuild the Democratic Party and Reshape American Politics, and his new book, his upcoming book, I should say, is a history of the voting rights, uh, a history of voting rights since 1965. It will be published next year on the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. Hey, Ari Berman, welcome back, sir, to the broadcast. Hey, hey Brad, good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you uh, checking in with us today. Uh, you've been in the courtroom, uh, I guess, all week now uh, for three days. How did it? Uh, how did it go? And uh, before we get into uh, some of the details, what were you struck by over these last three days in, in the courtroom in North? Carolina. Sure. So it's still going on. So it's hard to really reach any definitive conclusions. It's going to wrap up tomorrow. This is a, a really a, abbreviated process, even though it's four days. Uh, when there's a full trial, I imagine it'll go uh, a few weeks. But basically, uh, the plaintiffs now have the burden of proof uh, to show that there will be a discriminatory impact uh, from these voting changes. Uh, and so there's been a number of witnesses, uh, civil rights activists, uh, election experts, uh, political scientists who have testified uh, that there will be a discriminatory impact to changes uh, like uh, cutting early voting, ending same-day registration, uh, prohibiting uh, the counting of ballots that were accidentally cast in the wrong precinct. The interesting thing is that the voter ID provision of the law, which has obviously gotten the most attention, doesn't go into effect until 2016. Right. And so it's not really part of the discussion. Mm -hmm. So I know there's going to be some, uh, you know, hearings afterwards that say uh, North Carolina voting law, a voter ID law struck down or North Carolina voter ID law upheld, but that's not really what's being talked about. What's being talked about uh, is early voting, uh, same-day registration, and to a lesser extent, uh, the cutting back uh, of uh, the counting of uh, out-of-precinct provisional ballots. Mm -hmm. And so these are things that are not quite, I guess, quote-unquote, as sexy as voter ID, mm -hmm. um, but they affect a tremendous amount of people. And, and those are, and, 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 and those were all going in. Those are supposed to go into effect in 2014, unlike the photo ID restriction, which goes in uh, in 2016. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And so what happened uh, in, in, 20, uh, in 2012, uh, there were 900,000 uh, North Carolinians who voted early uh, during days eliminated by the North Carolina legislature. So they cut early voting from 17 days uh, to 10 days. And so uh, a lot of people are going to have to vote in a more truncated period of time. They also eliminated same-day registration during that early voting period. So before uh, you could show up during early voting, you you could register, you could vote at the same time on the same day, which was very convenient to people, particularly people who don't pay attention to, le to elections until right beforehand. Mm -hmm. Now, because there is no more same-day registration, uh, you have to register to vote 25 days before the election, up mm -hmm. to 25 days before the election. So the fa there's never been a state that's passed same-day registration and then repealed it. North Carolina is the first. There, there's been states that have cut early voting, uh, but North Carolina uh, is following that trend as well. And then the whole question of 
ballots not being counted at the wrong precinct is also something that could cause a lot of uh, confusion. So these three changes alone, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of voters that could be affected. And yeah, these were uh, also for the registration, doing away with the pre-registration that they had in North Carolina, where you were 16 or 17, you could go ahead and register if you were going to be 18 by the time the next uh, election came around. That's a very progressive policy. We don't have that in California. We don't have a lot of these policies. North Carolina, despite being uh, you know, a, a southern state, these were very progressive policies that they had in place. And they had gone from, uh, I think uh, you, you reported this, Ari, uh, something like uh, 43rd in the nation for voter turnout up to 11th after they had uh, put in these progressive policies that are all now uh, that have now all been stripped away unless uh, an injunction could be uh, can be put in place here. Ari Berman, yeah. what, what's the um, they've actually been calling witnesses during this uh, hearing, which is somewhat unusual, but I guess they want to develop a, a good fact record here. Uh, tell me about some of the people who have been testifying uh, on behalf of the plaintiffs uh, this week in North Carolina. Sure. Well, just just to go back quickly to the yeah. two things you said. So the pre-registration of 16s and 17-year-olds is being challenged. It hasn't been discussed much yet. Mm. Um, but there is a, a very prominent lawyer, um, Mark Elias, who represents a group of Duke University students who are basically arguing that the law violates the 26th Amendment, uh, which reduced the voting age from 21 to 18 mm-hmm. uh, for federal elections. Now, uh, the judge seemed somewhat skeptical of this argument when it was first introduced. Uh, this is a very novel claim they're making, so we'll see. This is going to be this is going to be argued later. So there, yeah, there is a, there is something with with regards to young voters. The other thing I will say is that North Carolina, as you mentioned, has been a very progressive state in recent de- years, right? Past, basically, in the last decade or two, when it comes to voting. For many years, it was a very unprogressive place uh, when it came to voting. They had, of course, poll taxes and literacy tests, and then for a long time even after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, uh, black registration and turnout lagged well behind white uh, registration and turnout. And so this is the backdrop to the whole argument. Basically, the plaintiffs are saying North Carolina had all these things that encouraged people to vote. The legislature took them away, uh, and that violates the Voting Rights Act. And that's basically the crux of the argument they're making, that this is going to disadvantage black voters more than whites. And so some of the the witnesses they have, there's uh, a few witnesses who are uh, longtime civil rights activists. There was a woman named... um, Carolyn Coleman, who was a longtime activist with the North Carolina NAACP uh, and uh, the national NAACP. She marched for voting rights in Alabama in 1965. Uh, and there was another woman, Rosanelle Eaton, who's 93 years old. She passed a literacy test in 1940, uh, had to recite the preamble to the Constitution from memory, the preamble to the Constitution from memory yes. to get the register. She testified. About and and she did it. And she, she, she had to do it without error. The, the entire preamble of the Constitution without error, and it should be noted, she did so successfully. That's what yeah. she had to go through uh, just yeah. to be allowed to register to vote uh, yeah. prior to the uh, prior to the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. There have been some members of the legislature who testified about the very unusual process that led to this bill. As you mentioned, uh, the House passed uh, a less strict version of, of voter ID with uh, many public hearings and a long time of debate. Uh, that then morphed into a 57-page bill uh, that basically restructured the entire uh, North Carolina 
uh, electoral system, which passed a month after the Supreme Court's decision, uh, in a very secretive process uh, with um, no public debate, uh, no time for anyone to read the bill. Uh, the House then had to pass that bill once it came out of the Senate uh, with no amendments, no public debate, basically in a few hours. And so uh, this North Carolina is really a case study um, for what happened after that, that Shelby County decision. And so there were some members of the legislature, both in the House and the Senate, who, who testified about that unusual process. There's been some election experts that have testified. Uh, the former State Board of Elections director, who was there for a very long time until he was replaced uh, by North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory, basically said that the, the voting restrictions are going to cause uh, a lot of uh, longer lines, angry voters. Uh, there's going to be a chilling effect on participation. So he's a very authoritative uh, source. And then there's been some expert witnesses as well, people uh, like a, a political scientist from MIT and the University of Wisconsin uh, who are um, making, uh, who kind of talked about their analysis of what the law is going to do. Now, the important thing to note is that the plaintiffs have the burden of proof now. Previously, if Section 5 were still around, the state of North Carolina would have had to prove that the law is not discriminatory. The se Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, that was what was essentially gutted uh, by the Supreme Court in that Shelby case you mentioned earlier. So previously, the state would have had to prove that these laws were not discriminatory. Yeah. Now we've got all of these people down in that courtroom trying, ha the, the burden is on them to prove that, in fact, it is discriminatory. Which right? is really tough because, I mean, they, ha they have to get all these witnesses, they have to marshal all this evidence. It, everything is on them to show that a law is discriminatory. And the state, basically, all they have to do is cross-examine. They're not calling any witnesses. Uh, and, and the judge has to take into account all the evidence and basically say um, to the plaintiffs, I mean, you guys have to prove to me that, that this is discrimination, whereas before the state would have had to prove to the judge that what they were doing was not discriminatory. And so um, beyond the differences of, between Section 2 and Section 5, because there are some pretty notable differences, uh, this changing legal standard alone makes it a lot harder uh, for the plaintiffs to win this case. So it's very possible that the plaintiffs could do a very good job of bringing witnesses, they could show a lot of persuasive evidence, and they could still lose. I mean, that's the new legal reality we're at. So I, I, I disagree um, with uh, your legal expert, um, Mr. Canning, that these, this, we're seeing the beginning of the end of these laws, because having sat in a courtroom for a week, I think it's very, very difficult uh, for the plaintiffs to be able to make these kind of cases under their remaining provisions of the Voting Rights Act. Not impossible, but I just think it's a lot more difficult. Well, and, and to be specific here, uh, what Ernie Canning was talking about was specifically the, the photo ID restrictions yeah. and yeah. the way that the, uh, the Supreme Court dealt with them. You know, Texas uh, Attorney General Greg Abbott down there in, in the case against the photo ID law down there, he has said, oh, well, there's, this has already been found by the Supreme Court that uh, photo ID laws are perfectly acceptable. Actually, yeah. that's not what the Supreme Court actually found what they basically found is that nobody that, that, that they claim that uh, there was not a record of evidence presented to them that showed that people were being uh, uh, disenfranchised yeah. and they actually said hey you know if you got those people bring them back we'll be happy to hear this case again so that that well, was the, specific yeah one of the interesting things about the North Carolina cases so there's going to be a full trial in July 2015, and the ID thing is going to be a major part of the trial. So this issue is going to come up then, too. Mm -hmm. But with ID, I mean, you can show, you can bring forth voters who don't have ID. 
and you can bring forth voters who don't have specific forms of ID that the state requires, because they're, they're requiring very specific forms of ID. Or you can bring in people who have problems getting that ID or who have disparities between the name on their ID uh, and, their, and their voter registration uh, name or they, uh, any number of things so they don't have access to underlying documents. With things like early voting and same-day registration, it's a little bit harder to bring forth people um, who can't vote during same-day registration or who can't vote um, during early voting. And so the thing I think that the judge is wrestling with is, yes, there might be a discriminatory impact in getting rid of early voting, uh, and uh, yes, there might be a lot of voters who are inconvenienced by it, um, but is that in and of itself a violation of the voting rights act, meaning if you have a policy that's popular and you take it away, right. is that bad policy or is that illegal? And and this is a this is a very this is a whole new uh, series of case law that we don't we don't really know what the court's going to say as far as that goes. Well, is is I recall in the Prop Eight case out here in California, they used and I don't know if this has come up uh, down in the courtroom there yet, uh, but you know in, in Prop Eight out here in California, we had marriage equality, same sex marriage was allowed. Then they came in and took it away with Prop 8. And I believe part of the argument was in that case was that you cannot take away a right that has already been secured. So if you already have the right to vote early, uh, you know, X number of days or register early uh, in North Carolina, you can't take away that right. That was my understanding. One of the issues that came up in the Prop 8 case has has that come up as a uh, as an argument down there in uh, in the courtroom in North Carolina. See, that would have been the legal standard under Section 5 of the VRA. They, mm-hmm. they, um, under Section 5, you couldn't do things like that. You couldn't, you couldn't give voters a right or a reform or a new tool and then take it away. Right. Under Section 2, it's, uh, it's not as clear uh, whether you can do that or not. And so uh, I, I think this is going to be something that, uh, that, you know, this is going to be one judge's opinion on it. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, a series of judges are going to have to weigh in here. Uh, about what the standard is, because uh, I, I think that you know you can take a right away. It, it seems to me, um, but you can't do it in a way that there's a discriminatory impact. And so uh, the real the real burden is on the plaintiffs now, the Department of Justice, the ACLU, the NAACP, uh, to basically show uh, that not only were these good policies that a lot of North Carolinians were li- were using, but that it's discriminatory to take them away, and that it'll uniquely burden um, black or other minority voters compared to white voters. And that's why, uh, in no small part, Ari Berman, this case is important. While North Carolina as a state in and of itself is important, uh, it it went narrowly for uh, Barack Obama in in the presidential contest in 2008. It went for Mitt Romney in 2012. But this case really is uh, bigger than just the state of North Carolina because it it sets up uh, the way the Voting Rights Act will be used uh, by the Department of Justice and by private individuals uh, now in the wake of what the Supreme Court did last year. This affects the entire country, what we are now seeing and learning down in North Carolina. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's important because North Carolina passed the toughest package of voting restrictions. They didn't do one thing like voter ID or 
one thing like cutting early voting. They did literally everything they could think of to do uh, to restrict voting rights. So that's it's important for that reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important because North Carolina is in many ways the future of the country, just like California and places like that when it comes to demographic change. And it's important, as you mentioned, too, because the issues in this case, uh, along, I, I would argue, with Texas, which is another state where there's going to be a big uh, voter ID uh, trial, you know, this, this represents, you know, how the courts are going to think about um, these very uh, important issues. Now, I, I imagine this is not going to be the last word. For, for, for example, this is just a preliminary injunction hearing. So the, the result could be very different um, at a full trial. The other thing is that whatever happens is going to get appealed. Um, and and mm-hmm. even if there's an expansive reading of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, I would imagine if the courts show, like they did in Wisconsin, if they continually uh, strike down laws under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, I guarantee you conservatives are going to challenge the constitutionality constitutionality of Section 2 as well. Which is unbelievable. All right, before I, uh, speaking of uh, the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and everything else, uh, I want to ask you about your book in the minute or two we have left. But before I do, uh, we should note here that the judge in this case, U.S. District Judge Thomas D. Schroeder, is a George W. Bush appointee. Now, uh, are you able to get any sense in the courtroom where he is on any of this? Uh, I, I, I realize, you know, predicting and, and guessing and reading tea leaves is a dangerous business, Ari. But do you get any sense of where he is on this case from from what uh, the proceedings in the courtroom? Well, I mean, you can infer from his biography that he's conservative. He doesn't strike me as a Tea Partier. I heard he's more of an establishment Republican. He seems like a fair judge to me. Uh, he's asked a lot of questions. Uh, right now, uh, the plaintiffs are doing their final arguments, so he's asking more questions of them, but I'm sure he'll ask a lot of questions from the state. I think he's grappling with these issues just like everybody else. Uh, he, it doesn't seem to me that he's someone who believes that racial discrimination doesn't exist anymore or anything like that. He doesn't strike me as Chief Justice Roberts. Mm. Um, but it's hard to infer just based on what a judge says, but he does seem to me um, like a pretty diligent judge. He's allowed a lot of testimony. Uh, the record's already 6,500 pages long, <laughs> and we're only in a preliminary injunction uh, hearing. So I think he realizes um, the severity of uh, the law that he's dealing with, but I mean... We'll find out. Uh, well, when we, we will. We will. Yeah. But I'm, you know what, Ari? I'm glad to hear you say that uh, at least your spidey sense is telling you that he seems to be a fair judge because that's uh, that's the concern. We didn't get that with with uh, Justice John Roberts, as far as I'm concerned, with the Voting Rights Act. Uh, when uh, he said in the Shelby case last year, uh, he wrote that, uh, that, that the preclearance voting laws are based on decades-old data and eradicated practices. He said, quote, the conditions that originally justified these measures no longer characterize voting in the covered jurisdictions. Today, the nation is no longer divided along those lines, yet the Voting Rights Act continues to treat it as if uh, to treat it as if it were. North Carolina's sweeping voter suppression uh, provisions, I would argue, uh, prove <laughs> prove Justice Roberts wrong just on, uh, you know, those basis and the way they were passed in and of themselves and prove Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her dissent correctly when she said that throwing out this section uh, of the Voting Rights Act, throwing out the preclearance section when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. 
Ari Berman, before I let you go, your book is coming out on voting rights and the Voting Rights Act coming out next year uh, on the 50th anniversary of the VRA. Um, what, if any of it is left by then, uh, what 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 has surprised you most? Uh, very quickly during your research for that book, and and what can we uh, what can we look forward to learning? I think just what surprised me the most is just how long it's taken to expand voting rights, how long it's taken to democratize the South and the rest of the country, to dismantle discriminatory election systems, to put uh, a legal system in place, uh, to protect voters, to expand voting rights, to elect people like President Obama and Congressman John Lewis. Uh, this took not one decade. This took many, many decades. And then uh, what was surprising to me, not altogether surprising, but just in terms of its detail, uh, the effort to restrict voting rights. I mean, this is something that's present from pretty much the minute um, the Voting Rights Act passed uh, up to today. It's gotten more and more sophisticated and more and more successful. So I'm really looking at these two strands, the kind of revolution of enfranchisement, and then I guess you could say the counter-revolution of disenfranchisement and how they occur and interact at the same time. And the way we're able to connect the dots from what happened uh, 50 years ago to today in the courtroom this week in North Carolina, when you, you know, when you have witnesses like 93-year-old Rosanelle Eaton stepping up and talking about what it was like before that Voting Rights Act, and here she is testifying to try to hang on to the protections afforded by it, uh, it, it's it's really incredible. It has been a long fight, and the fight is still continuing. It has clearly not been won when I think many people thought it had been, uh, but that fight goes on, and it's going on in a courtroom this week in North Carolina where Ari Berman is covering it uh, for The Nation. Uh, he's must-read on this stuff at thenation.com. He's also must-follow on Twitter at Ari Berman, his new book on voting rights, comes out next year. I will look forward to it. Hopefully we'll have you back on uh, to talk about that then, if not before. Ari Berman, my friend, always great to talk to you. Thanks for all your work out there. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate it. Good you to bet. talk to you. And you. This a little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. This a little light of mine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Keep that light shining. Take a quick break. Come back with uh, much more broadcast straight ahead, including the pretend journalist who uh, put out the fake Senator Menendez hooker story, some inside skinny we've got for you only on the broadcast on that. And, of course, Desi Doyen, the Green News Report, maybe even a nice word about Glenn Beck. We'll see if we have time for that. Nah. You're listening to the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned.
Donating your car or boat is an excellent way to help KPFK stay alive and on air. All you have to do is call 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's 877-KPFK-AUTO, and we'll take care of everything. Siddharth is a spellbinding, gorgeously wrought tale of one father's journey across India in search of his son. Eking out a living fixing zippers on the streets of New Delhi, he sends his 12-year-old son to work in a distant factory. But when his son doesn't come home for the holiday, his family suspects kidnapping by child traffickers, beginning a desperate search. An official selection of Human Rights Watch, Siddharth, opens on Friday, July 11th at the New Art, 11272 Santa Monica Boulevard in West L.A. A limited number of tickets have been offered to KPFK Film Club members who are invited to call the front desk at 818 818- 985-2711-0 for operator for a pair of tickets good Monday through Thursday only. And if you aren't already a film club member, please consider joining at kpfk.org. They call me Cuban Pete. I'm the king of the Roomba beat. When I play the maracas, I go chick chicky boom chick chicky boom Yes, sir, I'm Cuban Pete. I'm the craze of my native street. Yes, when I start to dance, everything goes chick chicky boom chick chicky boom chick chicky boom Welcome back to the broadcast. Uh, aside from that vaguely uh, racist song, uh, there is a reason we are playing Cuban Pete. Uh, and a reason why we have two Desis on one show. Anyway, uh, welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. Cuban Pete. Okay, There's the reason, the reason I'm playing that song is because uh, you may recall this 2012 hit job that happened against New Jersey Democratic Senator Robert Menendez just before the election. If you don't remember that, uh, it was a story. It ran at Tucker Carlson's fake right-wing news site called The Daily Caller. Uh, And this story uh, made the claim that Senator Robert Menendez, who was up for re-election, Democrat from New Jersey, had been taking trips down to the Dominican Republic and enjoying hookers down there. Uh, And uh, apparently a couple of these prostitutes came forward on video to claim that Menendez had not paid them. They were mad. This was all revenge. And uh, it was thought that, oh, this could ruin uh, Menendez. The FBI went down there, investigated. They were able to find absolutely no facts behind this story. And in fact, these women, uh, these supposed hookers, came forward later on and they said, yeah, we, were, we made that up. We were paid to say those things. It never happened. Now, the only reason we know about this story at all is because Tucker Carlson's Daily Caller had reported it. Uh, It was reported by a guy named Matthew Boyle, a guy who I had my own run-in with about a year earlier in 2011. He wrote the story for The Daily Caller. uh, And the thing uh, about—and now it has resurfaced. This story has resurfaced because The Washington Post has come out with their own report saying that the story was planted by a guy using the name, quote, Pete Williams, hence the Cuban Pete— because Pete Williams supposedly was part of a Cuban intelligence operation. Menendez is apparently no fan of Cuba. He was set to become the head of the Senate uh, Foreign uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. 
And the Cuban intelligence agency, uh, according to Washington Post and according to their unnamed source, I should add, in the U.S. government, Cuban intelligence agency wanted this guy Menendez out. And they had been shopping this story around under the fake name of Pete Williams to all kinds of media outlets, legitimate ones, not like Tucker Carlson's. And uh, those media outlets had, had been turning them down. Uh, they looked into the story. They said, eh, no, there ain't nothing here. We don't buy it. So they didn't report it. Of course, Tucker Carlson's The Daily Caller was all too happy to do so, specifically Matthew Boyle, who broke the story. He was delighted to do so. Uh, his fake reporting uh, it has become legendary. Back in 2011... He ran a story that that made. He ran a story that claimed that uh, EPA regulations cost 500 jobs in Texas today. And I, I noticed this story, and I thought, well, what the hell is he talking about? Turns out he was saying that uh, this company, Luminant, a coal company, was shutting down several coal-fired power plants in Texas due to EPA regulations that were just too costly for them. His story at The Daily Caller, Matthew Boyle's story, uh, was headlined, EPA regulations forces closure of Texas energy facilities, eliminates 500 jobs. Well, there you go. There's Obama and his EPA tyranny, his war on coal. And, of course, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce picked up that story uh, happily, retweeted it, tweeted over a link to Matthew Boyle's claim that uh, EPA regulations forced the closure of the plant, lost 500 jobs. U.S. Chamber ran their own story at their own blog. That's uh, And by the way, the U.S. Chamber, for those who don't know, huge right-wing lobbying group. Anyway, uh, they had said, uh, the U.S. Chamber had said on their own blog, quote, EPA regulation kills 500 jobs. And they pointed over uh, to Matthew Boyle's story. I thought surely there must be another side of this story. Surely it's not because of the EPA regulations that uh, these jobs were killed. Surely there must be somebody who has a different thought about it. Surely somebody at the EPA might have a different thought about it. But Matthew Boyle didn't talk to any of those people. He only talked to his friends, apparently at Luminant or the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. It took me about two minutes to uh, send an email out to uh, uh, somebody over at the Environmental Integrity Project, who immediately responded back to me, uh, suggesting that there were, in fact, other reasons for uh, these plant closings down in Texas. The Environmental Integrity Projects, uh, Elon Levin told me at the time, and we reported at Bradblog, that the company, Luminant, is highly leveraged. It pays out about $3.5 billion a year in debt, and it is flailing because it bought a lot of coal plants and decided to build three new ones as natural gas prices were falling at the time. Luminant's anxiety about the declining price of national gas and its effect on the company's profitability was right there, he told me, in their 2010 SEC 10K filings. So they were trying to make the EPA and the Clean Air Act the scapegoat for their own bad investments. That's what uh, Elon Levin told me about the coal company Luminant. And um, Matthew Boyle apparently couldn't find anyone who disagreed with uh, with the idea that EPA was killing jobs. So I asked Matthew Boyle 
uh, about it at the time on Twitter. Now, I've also invited uh, Matthew Boyle here to join me to explain himself either on the Menendez fake story or on the Luminant fake story. But I think he now blocks me on Twitter. So... Uh, in lieu of him joining us here live, uh, I'll just read our conversation from 2011 when I asked him about the Luminant story. Because the conversation that I had with Matthew Boyle of the Daily Caller was was pretty amazing. So I tweeted to him, uh, any reason, uh, Matt, any reason why you didn't bother to offer the alternative side of the story concerning your Luminant piece today? Not important, I asked him. He writes back and he said, what other side? EPA regulations killed jobs in Texas. I responded, so completely unnecessary to see if anybody might see it differently then? He wrote back, who sees it differently and how? Point me in that direction and I'll take a look. 500 people lost jobs today because of the EPA. I replied, did you bother to ask anybody other than Luminant about it? Matthew Boyle replied, of course I did. EPA supporters refused to go on record because EPA directly killed jobs. I asked him, who did you speak with that refused to go on record? It took me two seconds to find an alternative point of view. He said, several different sources. I'd love to hear yours. P.S. My story was accurate, by the way. And if my, uh, and he said, and if my sources refuse to go on the record, why would I publicly tell you who they are? That's journalistic malpractice. I said, well, if you actually sought such comment, but they refused, why wouldn't you say as much in the story? That's journalistic malpractice, because he didn't mention. He didn't say, oh, yes, we, we spoke with the EPA supporters who agreed with us, but they wouldn't go on record. He didn't mention that in his report. In other words, I think he's making that stuff up. He said, uh, well, because there are sources who verified the accuracy of my story, who support the EPA, but who wish not to comment. I replied, but you can't say who they are or even who you asked for comment, but declined to offer it on the record? Really? He said, I reported an accurate story. Please point out where you think it isn't. If you can't do that, you've shown you're a hack. He called me a hack. I said, you make claims here that don't appear in your story, Matt. That's hackery. I'll share the other side you failed to shortly. Thanks. Uh, and he said, I'll be glad to hear it. Until then, you haven't pointed out any issues in my story, something that is clearly 100 percent accurate. Of course, I then pointed out how his story wasn't, ran that piece at, uh, at bradblog.com, quoting the other side of the story. But he claimed, Matthew Boyle did, that he had all of these secret sources. Well, interestingly enough, uh, when it came to this Menendez story and the new news about it uh, and the claims, at least, that uh, Cuban intelligence agents were behind it. Um, he, uh, Matthew Boyle, wrote about these claims. And wh where is his comments here? Uh, he, he claims that he spoke with multiple sources. Let me see if I can get this. Uh, yes, here we go. That uh, he, he claims that he, quote, he worked with, quote, a wide array of sources in reporting on the story originally and that, quote, there were no indications that they were connected to or working for the Cuban government, unquote. He also calls the claim that this uh, Pete Williams character, uh, that he was, quote, not a source for the original story, never provided non-public information to this reporter. Of course, as we have learned, 
Matthew Boyle most likely just makes stuff up. He just makes stuff up to support whatever uh, right-wing corporatist nonsense he wants to. And, by the way, I should uh, add that uh, Tucker Carlson ended up retracting the story on uh, Senator Menendez, and uh, Matthew Boyle left shortly thereafter. In disgrace, he can no longer find a job after having screwed—oh, wait, what? No, he's working at Breitbart.com. What do you know? Yes, he's still working at the late Andrew Breitbart's uh, Breitbart News Network, uh, where they where he is making up stories apparently on a uh, on a daily basis on the front page. You can't fail in right wing media. No matter how much you get the story wrong, you can't fail. Uh, they don't care. No matter how much your conspiracies are made of stuff and nonsense, don't include evidence or include, or include evidence that is just made up out of whole cloth, you can't fail. You'll get a job at another one in the rare event that someone fires you, uh, as appears to be the case with Matthew Boyle at, the, uh, at Tucker Carlson's Daily Caller. And of course, now he's putting forward the same nonsense at Breitbart.com. So keep that in mind next time you see a story with Matthew Boyle's uh, byline on it. He's a clown. He should not be trusted. <sighs> All right, let's do some green news. Melting for Desi Doyen. As always, Desi, uh, you are, of course, our second Desi to be featured on the show today. Did you know that? No. What did I miss? Uh, you missed, apparently, Cuban Pete, which is oh, a... Oh, did he say Desi? That's, really, no, really? No, no, no. It's a Desi Arnaz song. Oh, oh, oh. That's he's actually the one singing Desi that. Arnaz oh, singing there Cuban. you go. So I've... two Desis on one show. Wow. What we, are the odds of that? We are blessed. Hey, before we get to the latest Green News report, uh, speaking of clowns, uh, this clown, this state senator... <laughs> this Kentucky state senator uh, in a hearing. His name is, what is it, Brandon Smith. This was a hearing last week uh, in response to uh, the EPA's new proposed regulations to cut emissions by uh, 30% by 2030 from 20, uh, 2005 levels. Uh, this guy made an amazing statement uh, in that hearing. Do we have time to play it? Yeah, I want to play it. It's a really short uh, statement. Uh, clip number two, G. I don't see you as being one of the enemies. I know you've got a, a very tough job to do, but as you sit there in your chair with your data, we sit up here and ours with our data and the constituents and stuff behind us. I don't want to get into the debate about the climate change, but I will just simply point out that I think in academia we all agree that the, the, the temperature on Mars is exactly as it is here. Uh, nobody will dispute that, yet there are no coal mines on Mars. There's no factories on Mars that, that, that I'm aware of. Nobody. So I think what we're looking at is something much greater uh, than what we're going to do. Yeah, nobody will dispute that, Desi. That the temperature is the same exactly on the Mars same. as it is on Earth? Yes. Oh, my God. And because, that is wrong, by the way. Well, yes, uh, apparently somebody does dispute it. NASA, who knows a bit about Mars. Uh, Earth is 57 degrees Fahrenheit is the uh, average temperature, while Mars, the average temperature is 
negative 81 Fahrenheit. And, you know, hey, maybe that's close in his world. I think he should go back to Mars, go back out in space and do those measurements but, again. But what he was saying, what uh, state senator, Kentucky state senator, a Republican, Brandon Smith, and by the way, all the Democrats on the committee in Kentucky are all also deniers. Naturally. Uh, and I don't have time to read some of the stuff that they said. But what uh, Brandon Smith was uh, claiming here was that uh, the temperatures are warming on Mars the way they are here, and yet nobody's burning coal on Mars. So uh, you've heard this claim. This is That's one of these wrong zombie like claims. 16 different ways. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, uh, no, just because uh, the, we have observations of other planets, that doesn't mean that those observations are actually as good as actual thermometers, which, you know, we haven't had on any other planet. Which we have here, I'm, and they don't trust them. Right. We have actual even, measurements. Right. And, and this has all been very well figured out, very well established. The science is very well established on this. You can get the full debunking at skepticalscience.com. Um, you know, it's just... It's more of those zombie myths that they keep recycling. The climate change deniers keep recycling so that they continue to force people to use fossil fuels, which, of course, are the cause behind global warming. The carbon dioxide emissions are the cause behind global warming. And the whole Mars myth, by the way, seems to of, of global warming on Mars seems to be based on two photographs of Mars, two satellite photographs, one in 1977 and one in, I think, 1998. Uh, and... Uh, there was more dust or something in the first shot right. than the second, it's which just, means and, that— And this guy speculated right. that, hey, maybe it's warming, but it's really—it's all speculation. And it's and it's actually since then we have the science to show that, no, that is not the case. No, nobody will dispute it, uh, Desi Doyen. Uh, that's what he says uh, here in academia. Academia, we all agree. And there's no oceans. There's very little <laughs> atmosphere on Mars. I mean, it's just completely different. It's absurd. But anyway. Uh, but yeah, more of the same. All right. Let's uh, let's get to our latest Green News report. Typhoon Neogari is being called the region's most powerful storm in decades. Japan hit with monster typhoon. The wind blowing so tough at times. While Hurricane Arthur breaks records on the U.S. East Coast. No, it's measurement. No, it's not. It's speculation. No time for deniers. BBC smacked for false balance in climate change coverage. Voters reject climate change denying politicians. Oklahoma, now the nation's earthquake capital, thanks to fracking. Plus... Lift off of the Delta II rocket with OCO2. Tracking a greenhouse gas seek of clues to climate change. NASA's new climate eye in the sky. All of those clues and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Wow, what a morning here in Waves, North Carolina. We are really uh, getting hammered with the wind. You're getting hammered on something. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, remember Freedom Industries in West Virginia? Yes. They spilled 10,000 gallons of methyl cyclohexyl methanol into the Elk River, poisoning the drinking water for 600,000 people. One in five people reported health issues after the spill, and then Freedom Industries immediately filed for bankruptcy thereafter. Well, finally, some accountability for that spill and for Freedom Industries. They were fined by the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration. How much? Well, $7,000 for keeping chemicals in diked areas that were not liquid tight, 
and $4,000 for not providing employees with proper handrailing to walk over the storage dike. So a total of $11,000 fine for the massive spill that poisoned the drinking water of 600,000 people for uh, weeks in West Virginia. That'll teach them. Teach them that crime pays and that it absolutely makes economic sense not to follow regulations because all you're going to get is a slap on the wrist if you happen to get caught. Speaking of accountability, what else do you have for us today, Des? Well, first, some extreme weather around the world in the Pacific. The first super typhoon of 2014. The worst storm predicted to hit Okinawa in 15 years. The results could be catastrophic. Typhoon Neogori is the most powerful storm to hit Japan in decades. First, it was a Category 5. It's now weakened to a Category 3. It's not as intense as the destructive super typhoon Haiyan that hit the Philippines last year, but Neogri is geographically massive, apparently larger than Superstorm Sandy. Meanwhile, in the U.S., Hurricane Arthur drenched North Carolina as a Category 2 hurricane over the July 4th weekend. Now, while Arthur wasn't very destructive, it was still record-breaking. It broke the record for being the earliest hurricane to make landfall than any other known hurricane in North Carolina history. And we know these things because of satellites. And now NASA has successfully launched into orbit a new eye in the sky to measure carbon dioxide emissions. Zero at liftoff of the Delta II rocket with OCO2. The Orbiting Carbon Observatory, or OCO2, satellite will measure carbon dioxide emissions in the Earth's atmosphere, pinpointing where CO2 comes from and where it goes on a global scale. It'll help scientists better understand how CO2 absorbs sunlight and traps heat, the mechanism behind climate change. You mean it will help NASA scientists with their fraud. Go ahead. <laughs> well, in fact, climate science denial is becoming toxic politics. A new national survey confirms that not only do a strong majority of American voters accept the science of global warming, they say they're going to actively vote against climate change denier politicians. The nationally representative survey from the Yale Project on Climate Communication finds registered voters say they're three times more likely to vote against a candidate who opposes action to reduce global warming. No time for deniers on the BBC. No, it's measurement. No, it's not. It's speculation. Mm. Well, respect. Uh, it's, it's a combination of the two, isn't it? As is this whole discussion. That was a BBC program from February. And now an independent oversight panel has told the BBC to stop using the practice of false balance in its climate science coverage. With staffers giving equal weight to political opinions of unqualified deniers over established scientific facts, misinforming the public on the nearly unanimous agreement among scientists on human cause climate change. Finally, thanks to fracking, Oklahoma is now the earthquake capital of the United States. That's due to the disposal of leftover toxic fracking wastewater into deep underground injection wells that the U.S. Geological Survey has linked to increased earthquakes, nearly 3,000 of them that have struck across Oklahoma in just the last few years alone. Now, yet another new study links hundreds of those earthquakes to just four unregulated wastewater injection wells outside Oklahoma City. The researchers say they were surprised Surprise to find fracking can induce earthquakes over 25 miles away. Amazing. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Never miss an episode. Download us anytime via TuneIn, Stitcher, or iTunes. And find us and follow us on the Facebook and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your... 
Green News Report. Yow, indeed. Enough news for you today. Packed into 58 minutes. We'll be back with you same Brad time, same Brad channel next week. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to G, our fantastic soundboard operator. Also to my guest, Ari Berman of The Nation. Stay tuned for The People's Game special World Cup coverage here on KPFK with Alan Minsky coming up next. We will see you next week, and I will look forward to it. Until then, you can find me on the Twitters at TheBradBlog or at BradBlog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good night, America.